Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. This episode explores how the COVID-19 crisis is impacting refugees and asylum seekers across Europe. Welcome everyone now to this webinar tonight. This will be actually the first of the three webinars that Churches Refugee Network will be hosting. I am Bishop John, John Perumbalov. I chair Churches Refugee Network. I'm also the lead bishop for Church of England for CTBI relations, Churches Together in Britain and Ireland, and I also serve as a trustee of CTBI. As we are actually Christians committed to this cause of supporting the most vulnerable in our society, I think we need to start with a word of prayer. So let us pray. God of love, thank you for living and loving in us and through us. May all that we do flow from our deep connection with you and all human beings. Help us become a community that vulnerably shares each other's burdens and the weight of glory. Listen to our heart's longings for the healing of our world. We pray in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so we will be having three of these webinars. Tonight, we focus on Europe to get the wider picture of the refugee issues. And on 1st and 15th of July, we will be actually focusing on United Kingdom, and we will have speakers from uh, the four nations uh, within United Kingdom, England, Ireland, um, Scotland, and Wales. So, so the rest of the two will be focusing on our own situation here in this country, and today we focus on Europe. And we have uh, three speakers with us uh, today. We have Torsten, Torsten is actually the General Secretary for Churches Commission for Migrants in Europe. And then you have Fiona Kendall, who is the Legal Affairs Advisor for Federation of Evangelical Churches in Italy, Mediterranean Hope Migrant and Refugee Program. And then thirdly, we have Kirillie Reed. Kirillie is the chaplain and refugee projects officer in Calais. So we will go in that order. We will first have uh, Torsten and then Fiona and then Kirillie. So you will notice that we are coming closer home then. So Kirillie is actually working right at the gate of UK in Calais. And that will lead us to our further uh, conversations. 
So I think that that's enough as introduction and we will actually listen to Torsten Moritz first. Yes, hello. Good evening from Brussels. Uh, it's a privilege to be in your midst. I had the opportunity to be among you as CTBI Church's Registry Network on a number of occasions. This time it's only through the distance, but I hope to be amidst you in the near future as well. As Bishop John has said, I'm the General Secretary of the Church's Commission for Migrants in Europe, CCME. For those of us uh, you don't know CCME, just very briefly, we're a European ecumenical umbrella organization of churches and councils of churches, mainly Orthodox, Anglican, Protestant churches from across 20 countries in Europe at the moment. We, on the one hand, network, collect churches' concerns, exchange best practice, and on the other hand, we advocate for the rights of refugees, migrants, minority ethnic people with the European institutions. That means mainly the EU, but also the Council of Europe and a bit less the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And with reference to, well, Britain and Ireland, the Irish case is very clear still, the British case less so. We are at the moment evaluating what it exactly means for us that Brexit has taken place, um, how we can best address European aspects of what's happening in the UK through our work. I'll give you a brief flashlight of some impressions which we have um, on asylum issues, refugee issues. And I think what you've seen throughout the last three, four months is a lot of situations at the border. Fiona will say a bit about Italy. So I'll just underline that countries like Greece, like Cyprus, like Malta are very much exposed to refugee migrants movements due to the fact that they're at the external border of the EU. And it is fair that the EU hasn't done very much to help them. It is very often that these countries are and feel left alone. On the other side, it needs to be said that quite a few countries like Greece, but also Malta, have chosen to really try to keep refugees off their territory. We've seen that in the beginning of March at the Turkish-Greek land border mainly, we hear very worrying incident reports from the Greek islands at the moment that people are really pushed back who've actually landed in Greece and are simply put into boats and pushed back literally. We also know that there's enormous violence at the borders, particularly, for example, at the, at the Croatian-Bosnian border. So the whole question, how do refugees and migrants get into Europe is very, very crucial and very, very yeah, disconcerting. Part of the reality is that the EU um, and countries outside the EU have in the last years very much started to cooperate with third countries. Many of you will know that in 2016, there was a joint statement of the EU member states in Turkey, which had as its main element that Turkey would act as a gatekeeper and keep the borders closed. There's lots of discussion uh, that something similar should be done with Libya and other countries on northern African shores or outside European Union. And that's something where the UK has always very much participated despite all the reservations. So we're very, very concerned about that. We are trying to see what we can do here in Europe to ensure that people really have an access as they should have under the European Union's legislation, but also under European conventions of the Council of Europe 
but it's very, very difficult because keeping the borders open would mean really having to address the question where these people arriving go. And that's a very, very contentious issue between member states. So at the moment, the main way of European Union and others to address refugee movements is trying to ensure that they don't land in Europe. And we're very, very concerned about that. Some of you may have heard that we're expecting in the next weeks that the EU will propose a pact, as it's called, on asylum and migration. It is still very unclear what will exactly be in there, but there's, from what we hear, it will be a lot about strengthening border cooperation with third country and not looking too much what these third countries really do um, and trying to stop people on the way. So we're afraid that the tendency will continue to keep people out who might be in need of protection, but we will also do our best to, to at least change that because what we've been put forward is a plea for safe passages. Fiona will tell a bit about the humanitarian corridors. That would be ways that people who are in need of protection can safely and legally come to Europe and also that people who are part of a, of a changed and realistic labor migration policy could come safely and wouldn't have to risk their lives and their well-being coming. I'll leave it there for the time being and, and moved over to the second issue, COVID. Um, you will all have had your own experiences with COVID. What I would like to underline is that, of course, it is difficult to tell somebody to stay at home who doesn't have a home. So we've seen that in many of the refugee camps, that conditions are dreadful, that minimum hygiene measures cannot be applied because, as you've seen on the Greek islands, there's 70 people using, using one water tap and there's two toilets for 500. And how do you keep any physical or social distance when you're 10 in a room of 12 square meters? So that's very, very difficult. Um, a number of European countries have used COVID as an excuse to close their borders, to stop people at the borders. And we've also seen other uh, th things which were at least excused with COVID, like locking people up in, in centers, which used to be open centers, which became detention centers, and so forth. We've seen very rough forced testing, both of refugees as well as minority ethnic people, for example. Roma have been very much affected by forced testing under very brutal circumstances. So there's concern there. We've had seen a number of positive things happening. In some countries, um, people were released from detention. In some countries, we've had a bit of a legalization of certain group at least, or at least given them access to minimum health care, even if they're undocumented. Um, and we've also seen that for in a number of countries, Asylum seekers were very early in being given the right to work in their asylum procedure simply because the other migrant workers or temporary workers, seasonal workers, were no longer there. My time is slowly running out and I would therefore just like to mention another big debate of these days without going into too much detail, of course, the whole issue of racism, both manifest racism and structural racism is something which has enormous impact on, on, on the situation of refugees on the asylum system. Mm, there's something throughout Europe and countries have learned the worst from one another, which I would call a culture of questioning the credibility. And in this whole questioning of the credibility, in my view, a lot of racist prejudice comes in, a lot of 
structural racism in, in disempowering people who are trying to have their rights recognized comes in. And of course, in the big debates which we're having on asylum, you'll often hear the debate, oh, people are not really coming from any conflict or people are not coming because of real refugee reasons. That may in our narrow definition today be true, but I think it would merit an examination to which extent people are coming as well because there has been colonialism, there has been slavery, and the heritage in the countries of origin and destination is still very much alive. As I said, this is 10 minutes. It's a very, very shortcut flashlight kind of thing. I'll be happy to give more details, um, but these are the few things I wanted to share with you for the beginning. Thank you. Thank you, Thorsten, for that uh, uh, introduction, um, at least bringing in the, the main issues that we need to be looking at and being aware of at this time. And we will, we will have time actually to ask some questions to you at the end. And we will now move on to uh, Fiona. Thank you, and, and thank you very much for the invitation to participate this evening. It's, it's really lovely to be part of this. Um, as Bishop John said, I'm seconded to work with the Federation of Protestant Churches in Italy. I'm a mission partner shared by the Church of Scotland, um, the Methodist Church of Britain and Global Ministries. In my former life, I was a lawyer and um, in private practice for 20 years. So the work I'm doing for Mediterranean Hope, which is the refugee and migrant programme of the Federation of Protestant Churches in Italy, is primarily advocacy, policy, communication work, rather than frontline stuff. I'm speaking to you tonight from Rome, where I'm based with uh, our team at the head office. But for those of you that don't know Mediterranean Hope, we also have teams working on Lampedusa, in Sicily, Calabria, and in Lebanon. And they're engaged in a really diverse range of, of activities, frontline search and rescue support, reception for migrants, campaigning, advocacy, and also management of our humanitarian corridors program. Before going any further, I just wanted to give you a bit of a snapshot of what the situation has been here in Italy in terms of COVID. You'll all be aware that it's been bad. It has. That we, in terms of figures, we rank third worst in, in Europe. We've had about 237,500 cases and uh, 34,000 deaths, and we think we've still got about 25,000 cases active and the severity of the figures has been reflected in the severity of the restrictions that the government put in place from a very early stage far back as February in the north of Italy and throughout the whole of Italy um, from early March and effectively we've been confined to our houses for the best part of three months um, forbidden even to exercise beyond 300 meters from our doors and having to complete a self-certification form every time we go out in order to, to justify why we're doing that. Um, the restrictions, I'm glad to say, have largely been, been lifted now, but one metre social distancing is still in place, face masks on public transport and um, any public place, um, a ban still on large public gatherings, and still anyone who can work remotely being encouraged to do that. And, I wanted to do that just to kind of give you an idea of the, 
the suffering that the country feels it has gone through before talking about that in the context of, of migration, of arrivals, reception and integration. Um, because there is a context there and that maybe informs some of what's been going on, on here. You'll all be aware that the, the figures of, of num numbers of people arriving in Italy by sea have been considered by some politicians to be something of an invasion, but those days are long past. Back in 2015, as many as 180,000 people per annum arrived. However, it's very different now. If you jump to 2018, the figures dropped to 15,000. Last year, to only 2,000. Um, and this year, in the first six months, in the same period, it's up again, but still only to about 5,000. So it's important to, to be aware of that because of a measure that the Italian government took in March, singling out the group of people who arrive by sea specifically to be excluded from receiving any support at all during the health crisis. Specifically from the 7th of March, the Italian government declared that Italy would not meet the necessary requirements for classification as a safe port but only in respect of rescue vessels flying a foreign flag, rescuing people outside Italian waters. So in other words, if you were a cruise ship, it wouldn't be a problem. But if you were a German NGO boat arriving with 130 exhausted migrants, you could forget disembarking people in Italy until the 31st of July. It seems really harsh and um, the ostensible premise for the decree was the, the health emergency and of course we all accept that there were huge pressures on the Italian health services but from the figures that I've just mentioned, so disproportionate um, and such an unfair measure to, to put in place. And the irony is that it doesn't really seem to have had any impact on the number of people actually arriving in the first three months of the year the same number of people arrived as in the second three months of the year post decree, about 3,000 in, in each three months. Perhaps the difference though is that now people are tending to arrive autonomously in little boats rather than NGOs. And of course it's true that the health emergency presents challenges for people arriving by sea. There isn't enough space to quarantine the people who arrive. The Lampedusa hotspot only holds 96 at the best of times and with social distancing it's practically impossible and the sad reality is that for the poor souls that have arrived many of them have been forced to sleep outdoors on the quay before they are taken and transferred to another part of Italy just in order to satisfy the idea of quarantine and social distancing. There is now a quarantine ship moored off the coast of Lampedusa and I hear that the transfers are now being affected quite quickly. The, the situation that prevailed before has passed, but it's still not exactly what you'd call a satisfactory situation. And it has also added to the tensions in Lampedusa, which is a community that has long felt overwhelmed by the, the migrants arriving. The Lampedusans are now concerned that the existence of a quarantine ship off its shores means that there's going to be a permanent floating hotspot. And so over the course of this week, they are out protesting, demanding closure of the hotspot that's on the island and unsurprisingly looking for the opening of a hospital which doesn't exist on the island. In Lampedusa, tensions are often high in the summer when the, when the numbers of people coming rise, but they've been exacerbated by COVID. 
In terms of reception, I'll talk just quickly about a couple of um, our projects, one of them being the uh, reception centre that we have in Sicily, the other being the Humanitarian Corridors project. The reception centre, the Casa delle Culture, is for 40 vulnerable migrants and based in Chicli in the south of, of Sicily. It's been a, a very successful project. It operates not just as a place to accommodate and support migrants, but also as a community hub. But of course, because of COVID, everything has changed. Fortunately, the migrants who are housed there are still living in the independent apartments which are within the structure. But all of the community activities have had to be suspended. It's been impossible for staff to operate in a normal way. All the support that's normally offered face to face is having to happen digitally or by telephone. And so that has had an impact on the quality of care that we are able to, to provide to migrants. And whilst we've done our very best to continue to support them as best as possible, it has been hard. And I'm sure that's an experience that many of, of you listening will, will share if you're involved in supporting people. In terms of our humanitarian corridors project, um, COVID has basically led to its temporary suspension. This project began in 2015. It's um, a method of, of bringing people safely and legally into Europe. Um, every two years, the Italian government has agreed to authorise a thousand visas for vulnerable migrants transiting through Lebanon. And we bring them to Italy where they're supported for up to two years, um, looked after not just in terms of the provision of accommodation, but also legal support, support into work, language tuition and the like. Sadly, because of the travel restrictions and the security measures in place, We've not been able to bring anyone from Lebanon since the beginning of February. We hope to restart the programme in September, all being well, but there will be extra measures in place, clearly. People are going to have to be tested for COVID before they arrive. There may have to be a quarantine period after they arrive. Um, so it may have a different look and feel. Um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I wanted quickly to take the opportunity to talk about integration because in amongst all the bad stuff that's going on, there's also some good news. COVID somehow seems to have presented an opportunity as well as a challenge. Um, in Italy, about 430,000 people are believed to work irregularly in the Italian uh, agricultural sector primarily. About 16% have no labour rights at all, and around 40% are earning below the minimum wage. Legalising the position of those people who work in Nero or off the books to keep us fed and cared for has been the subject of debate in Italy for years, but it's become a really hot topic during the pandemic, partly because of the danger presented by the intolerable conditions that these migrant workers often live in, an enhanced risk caused by the virus, but also due to the catastrophic effect on the agricultural sector of the travel restrictions. So urgent change has been sought, not just by the workers themselves, but also by agricultural organisations who are missing out on their Eastern European seasonal labour force who couldn't travel. Um, and also crucially, the, Itali the new Italia Viva Minister of Agriculture who herself is a former farm worker and trades unionist, has had a real heart for changing the situation of these migrant workers and has been so vociferous in her promotion of regularisation, threatening at different points to resign from her post 
and battering through really difficult negotiations overnight, that miraculously, on the 13th of May, um, political headway was made and a decree has been pronounced. Um, and essentially, certain categories of workers are now to be granted temporary permits and given access to certain rights. Now, it's certainly not a panacea, but it's, it's a first step. According to the new decree, migrants who've previously worked in agricultural, fishing, care or domestic work sectors can regularise their status through a couple of different procedures. In the first track, third country nationals who have been on the territory without a valid residence permit since October can apply for a six month resident permit to look for a job. And in a second track, employers can apply to regularise their foreign and Italian workers without a regular contract and put in place proper employment contracts. As I say, it's, it's certainly nothing like what we would ultimately hope for, but it's a good start. And for the team working in Calabria, who are based in the shanty towns there with the migrant workers, it's really fantastic. It's the fruits of a long campaign on their part to improve rights for, for those people who are really in very difficult conditions. So I have gone on for more than my 10 minutes. I apologize for that. There's so much more that I could say. But I hope that at least gives you a flavour of the good and the bad that might have come out of, of COVID in Italy. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you so much for that, actually. Um, there were quite a, quite a lot there, general stuff and specific to Italy. And we will probably come back to some of those during the question time. Uh, we will now uh, move on to Curly. I think one of the, while I've been there for 18 months uh, in this role, during the past year, my main role, my main project has been managing a refugee safe house, um, as well as being involved with other agencies supporting, multi-agencies supporting predominantly women and children. Um, the Calais context, I mean, we've probably, you've probably all heard, it's, it's a very hostile environment. It's a town surrounded by barbed wire and walls. In the last 18 months since I've been there, I've seen just almost the whole landscape change, which is so difficult in an era of environmental awareness and a movement to plant more trees. In Calais, they're all being chopped down um, so that there's no possibility of shelter for exiled peoples. And in their place, more fences and barbed wire is being put up. And in, I think I was so struck, I think, I don't know about others, but in the COVID period of lockdown, I still had access. I had a paper that said I could keep working. So I was going backwards and forwards um, to Calais. And I was struck by one, the deserted motorways. But one day as I was driving by, as I was on this deserted motorway, I had to slow down and there were cones along the road. And, and I wondered why. I thought maybe there was an accident, but no, there were about 10 men putting up shiny new barbed wire coils uh, along the bridge. So even in this time of lockdown, the resources were put into um, more and more securitization and so-called protective um, measures. So it's, it was, it's quite a, a bleak place to be in um, often. Um, there's increased cases of police brutality with tear gas, forced displacement, destruction of property. And just last, on Saturday, 
um, it was in the paper that um, police have actually been charged now. Uh, it's been proven that um, the violence against, particularly um, a few weeks ago, against the Eritrean communities. Um, there, and, but there's finally been some charges laid. Just some facts. I know it's difficult to be accurate, but prior to the COVID-19 outbreak, Northern France was home to about 1,500 to 2,000 migrants who were hoping to get to the UK and living in dispersed camps. Um, most of these are in along the outskirts of the towns, in abandoned warehouses, the edges of industrial estates and barren wasteland. Um, they continue to live in these dispersed settlements, even though we do call it, refer to it as the jungle, they are quite dispersed settlements with different um, cultural groups uh, living there. Um, the vast majority um, people we see of exiles um, young men, usually between 16 to 30. We've had different periods of having more families at the moment. Um, there are 10 families we know of living outside of Calais in the jungle, sorry, around Calais in the jungle. Um, many, if not all of them, have legitimate claims um, for refugee status, um, but they can only uh, get that their destination. As we know, Calais is a has always been one of these traveling routes to get to the UK and the only way they can claim asylum there or to connect with their families is to reach uh, UK soil, however that may be. Um, the Human Rights Observers documents, they document daily and record human rights violations of the displaced people along uh, the French-British border. And last month they observed um, displaced people were subjected to 101 evictions from camps. That's just in the last month. 116 tents and 97 blankets and sleeping bags were seized by um, the security forces. And these forced evictions have affected at least, probably 100, at, at the very least, 106 unaccompanied children. I think it's frightening to think about this in just one month. So in this period, COVID period, the numbers you've probably heard in the news of both attempted and successful crossings uh, of the channel have risen to new heights. Um, one of the lead local agencies estimates that with the good weather and probably less shipping in the channel during to the virus pandemic and with potential eyewitnesses confined to their homes, by the French regulations, the success rate has increased from around 60 to 80%. Um, but we also have heard that about a thousand people were intercepted by the French border patrol as well since the beginning of lockdown. I've just found it really interesting speaking to local um, people who've been there for longer than I have that they say that this is a regular pattern as well. So that the numbers seem to be quite stabilized um, during this period. It's almost like they described it to me as a bit like canals, you know, the, the gates, the canal gates and the, the water levels being managed very carefully. So it's almost like when there's enough, were too many people in Calais, somehow they miraculously make it to the UK, but the numbers seem to be managed. This is rumor, but after five years of people being and seeing the same patterns, they say they see this around spring and autumn every year. I haven't been there long enough to say whether this is true or not. Um, for those of us 
in Calais working closely with um, refugees. It's frightening to think that people are preparing to attempt these crossings in flimsy makeshift crafts, trying to cross one of the busiest and most dangerous shipping lanes, not to mention dangerous currents. So there's always this sense of anxiety that we live with it, waiting to hear um, if someone we know may, may have drowned or um, of what's happened, what's happened to people. Um, I think few of us have had quite a few sleepless nights because we don't know often, but the agencies are trying really hard to get out information to explain to people how dangerous this is and trying to protect, trying to protect lives, but also advocating both the British and French governments to say, please create safer um, ways uh, to claim asylum than this. We live in grey, um, and I think there's this perception, and people say, you know, the people smugglers are so so terrible taking money from defenseless people. I have just one little um, anecdotal story that I listened into a, a new volunteer um, speaking about this with um, some refugees in the day centre. And they said, these people are, are bad and you shouldn't give them their money. And they said, no, no. The refugees said, no, these are good people because they are helping us. They're the only ones that are helping us. So in Calais, we live in grey. Um, and sometimes the rights and wrongs um, become quite blurry um, for those who have lived there and worked there for a long time. Um, I think during COVID it's had taken an emotional um, impact on the volunteers who've been there, but not being able to offer the same support uh, that was there before. Um, I've seen quite a few burnouts from volunteers. But there's also been some really positive things happening. Um, those who have been not able to get back to their homes and were left in Calais, the volunteers, banded together and have created um, a wonderful new um, agency called Calais um, Food Collective. And so they've been able to make food packs and to, to give um, those out in the jungle. Uh, so safely, so that people with reduced, because one of the issues with COVID is that haven't been able to um, provide basic needs of the hygiene, sanitation and food. Uh, so people were literally going hungry. And so new ways. And one of the things in Maria Skobstover House, in the safe house that I work, was um, those refugees who were felt a little trapped in the house um, were able, also we were able to start mini projects of food preparation and supporting agencies so that there wasn't this sense of helplessness, but we were able to then uh, help and deliver food um, in the jungle as well. Uh, so much to say. Um, this is just a, a, you know, a few little steps along the way, but I think one of the other things that is really important that I've been involved with is the People Not Walls cross-channel solidarity organization. So it's so important not just to, to feed people physically or to care for physical needs, but also to keep pressuring the French and, and um, British governments just to try and work out safe, legal ways for people to claim asylum. I think that's probably all for now, but I'm very happy to answer questions um, at the end. Thanks. Thank you, Karoli. There is so much to take in uh, from all that you said, and, and we are definitely coming back to some of those things in the questions.
Um, so I would actually start with Torsten um, while I give a little bit of space for Kirli to, uh, to have a, uh, a, a deep breath, no? Um, so Torsten, uh, one question is about uh, um, the Church's Commission on Migration in Europe. Are you involved in lobbying to ensure a Great Britain negotiated deal, uh, an agreement similar to Dublin III, where actually uh, during the transition period, beyond the transition period, we can guarantee a continued legal pathway for legal uh, reunification. Is that question clear? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I've been looking at some of the questions coming in, and this is by far the trickiest. Um, in the sense, yes, we are working on the reform of Dublin, and we are aware that there's very that the family reunification bit is, is a very good one if it works, if it's implemented. Um, and one of the few legal channels for people to really be unified as a family. While this is very good, the problem is in the negotiations that Dublin as such is a really terrible thing because it basically pushes all the responsibility to the member states at the external border of the EU. So the work we are doing is to have Dublin as a better mechanism where there's some solidarity and distribution of those arriving in Europe so that they don't all have to be cared for in Cyprus, in Greece, Malta, Italy, and keeping the provisions of the family unification. So this is at the moment a bit tricky. We are involved, and to be very honest, I say very little space for it. If we then against this background will say, could the UK nevertheless take it? It's tricky, to be very, very honest. We are working on it, but I'm at the moment not sure whether we would make, make that one of the major issues, simply because all, of all the side effects, if you so want. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dustin. I'll direct the next one to uh, Fiona. Um, you must see the question, how relevant is the question of why people come to Europe and seek asylum uh, because of war and safety and all those reasons. Should this be a central concern when we try and decide who should stay in the host country? It's, <clears throat> it's an interesting question. Um, and I have to suspend my own feelings about this in, in answering it and, and be realistic because I would probably favour an open borders policy. <laughs> um, but obviously countries have to manage things politically. I, I do think the question of why people come is, is important. I think it's important in terms of the credibility of government programmes and safe passage schemes, for example. Um, it is certainly easier to convince people that there are deserving migrants, if you like, if you can point to uh, flight from war or persecution or medical vulnerability or whatever. Um, I think it's a much bigger challenge to convince people of um, the, the, the merit of allowing people to come for other reasons. And yet, ironically, I wonder if in light of the COVID crisis, we perhaps have an opportunity to do that because I think it has opened people's eyes 
to the degree to which we need migration to support some of our frontline services, um, to support our food, um, and it therefore perhaps brings it home to people that migration is not just something for them, but it actually affects us as well. And that we have a symbiotic relationship, all of us with one another, and that there are different reasons that justify mobility. So um, that's a long-winded way of saying, I think probably at the moment, people are more comfortable with the idea of extreme need but I think we should seize the opportunity to persuade people that there are many good reasons for migration and that we should work out good schemes that encourage people to come. Thank you. Um, I, I'm going back to Ackley Clauston because there is a question directed to you. Uh, what's happening on the Greece-Turkey border? Yeah, the situation at the Greek-Turkey border is quite a, quite a changing setup. And it very much depends on the weather situation and it very much depends on what the Turkish authorities are doing. So we've for a long time seen that relatively few people were coming over. And then in March, all of a sudden, the Turkish authorities, for a number of reasons, decided to tell people in Turkey, the borders are open. And to some extent, even hired buses, which bring, would bring people to the borders with, with Greece. Um, and told people who were inside Turkey, well, we either take you to the border with Greece or we send you back to Syria or Iran or whatever. So it's, it's really a made up thing. But the result was that there were tens of thousands on the way or at the border, the land border of Turkey with Greece. And the situation in the beginning of March was that there were quite violent clashes and that during these clashes, two people were killed. And there's at the moment call for an investigation. But I think most of the evidence points to the Greek border guards as having yeah, really shot at people trying to cross the border. This, on the basis of Greek being very, very tough and also saying we will not take any asylum claims in, uh, for a month, has, and Turkey also say, finding it less opportune to send people to the border, has led to decrease there. What we've seen in the last month is a smaller but still continuous arrival movement on the Greek islands. So the islands in the eastern Aegeus, often islands which are a mile or two from, from Turkey mainland. And there what we've seen at the moment is that there seems to be a concerted effort of Greek authorities to really take people, even if they've arrived on Greek soil, and send them back often in dingy boats, once again endangering the people. So we're seeing at the moment what most observers call an organized pushbacks by Greece to Turkey. That's the, the snapshot as of today. It, we might have things happening at the Greek-Turkish land border tomorrow. It is influenced by many factors, um, as, which are a bit unpredictable, like the Turkish regime and the weather. Thank you. Uh, so the next one is to you, Kirili. Is, is France likely to carry on protecting Calais as the gateway to the UK after Brexit? Will they? That's a very interesting question. I think there's been a lot of discussion around how much money the British government have been giving to the French government um, for securitization. 
Um, I haven't heard the latest figures, but I know last year that was one of um, the points of the People Not Walls group when when we found that we're able to say, well, how much money is is Britain actually paying France to keep the borders safe? So after Brexit, I'm I'm not sure. Um, I haven't heard that this is the case, but who knows? Who knows? And I. Uh, I suspect that this will still be a relationship um, that will continue after Brexit. Okay, okay thank you. Um, uh, Fiona, uh, is Italy active in any resettlement initiatives with the UNHCR? Uh, yes, is the short answer to that. Um, there are, I guess, three different things on the go. There's resettlement at proper, if you like. There is the humanitarian corridor scheme to which I referred and in which UNHCR are peripherally involved as referrers of candidates for the programme. But there's also the um, evacuation scheme from Libya, an emergency transit mechanism, which is bringing people directly out of Libya to Italy. Um, so these are all, I guess, important programs. Uh, it's probably also worth saying that the Italian government is keen to promote this type of program. Um, specifically, it, it's very interested in complementary pathways and we've been delighted to find um, a good deal of support from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in relation to our proposal to extend the humanitarian corridor scheme into the rest of Europe. Um, the Prime Minister has confirmed his willingness to be at the head of any initiative, provided that there is support from other European partners. Um, and I guess that's where everyone else comes into the equation, because a bit like search and rescue and disembarkation, Italy doesn't want to be left alone shouldering the burden. Um, but if, it's, if, if it can be part of a scheme, which involves European solidarity, it's very happy to do that. Um, so I would encourage people who are, who are watching, if they are, whether they're British or from other parts of Europe, to get in touch and perhaps learn more about the European Humanitarian Corridor Scheme and how other parts of Europe could step up and, and share this uh, as an initiative. Uh, it's clear that I think from the Global Refugee Forum, but also from within the European Union, that safe passage is the way forward. So schemes such as this, not just this, but such as this, are extremely important. Okay, thank you. Um, there are a few questions which are um, within the broader context of uh, Brexit, no? Uh, so maybe we will try to combine some of them. Uh, but, but if I can ask, you know, uh, Kirili, from your point of view, um, what can actually the churches in the UK do to participate in giving life to the migrants and asylum seekers uh, in the light of Brexit? No? Um, do you think that question is um, for what, once they arrive in the UK or in, in Calais itself? Yeah, I think it, it's probably general, no? Uh, we are talking about the wider context of Europe mm -hmm. and many of these asylum seekers and uh, um, refugees do not arrive here directly. Uh, 
So uh, the question is actually why either? How do we actually, the churches here, um, uh, respond to and, and, and how are we able uh, to participate in, uh, in that support now? I think um, my work in Calais has opened my eyes to the amazing range of gifts and selfless giving um, of people coming over to, to help um, on the ground. So preparing food packages, um, distributing clothes, working in kitchens, and also giving, um, giving money, donations, um, and food. So those very practical things that people sometimes feel very frustrated um, at home and feel that they want to come and be there and to help. But there are other ways of helping. And I think there are so many needs in the UK itself of how, how do we help people integrate? How do we, I think I, I was actually in a webinar this morning and we were discussing um, how do people hold on to their own culture um, once they arrive in the UK, but also integrate well into society and this, this tension that's there. And I think what we, we discussed was that language is so important, that people given um, help with language to, to, so that they are not isolated. So what can you offer? Can you offer hospitality? Can you offer friendship um, here? And I think for me, what I've learned the most is how much I have learned from others. Uh, so sometimes I think the church maybe needs to change the way it views this. So not what can we give, how can we help, but how can those um, on the borders in Calais or how can those who have arrived in the UK help us and enrich us? Because I think we're the impoverished ones often and we need, we need others. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And, and to you again, uh, briefly, uh, what has been the impact of COVID in, in Calais? Uh, it's huge. Um, certainly impact on volunteers and agencies, completely pared down operations. So minimal, minimal care and help, which has meant um, exiles in the area have suffered. We have less food and as I mentioned before, and sanitation, really poor hygiene, but also they were the last, um, the last to get shelter, the last to, to have a place um, of being able to protect. Um, the, the agencies again and again were asking the local governments to provide safe shelters. It eventually happened. So we take heart that once these small steps have been made, that more will happen. But there's a stigmatization um, so that um, migrants have not been allowed on public transport and they have not been allowed to go into supermarkets and buy food. So this, this fear that um, actually the, the refugee uh, community are the ones that are, um, who may be the ones that will spread this disease when in actual fact, they have been not affected at you know in such a small way compared to the rest of the French population. Yeah. Okay, thank you. There are a few more questions, but I want to at least ask three of them quickly. So if you can be brief, no? Uh, one, um, uh, Torsten, uh, in your conversation, I think you mentioned about racial prejudice and, and, and connected it with migration, no? Uh, so 
can you just actually briefly explain how this current pandemic racism and migration are all interrelated? And, and what do you see <laughs> after? That's, that's probably uh, the topic for a lecture I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I mean one, I, I've already been outlining how, how particular groups are overproportionately affected. And I think the UK has been particularly leading on, on providing evidence um, how black, Asian, minority, ethnic people are overproportionately affected by the whole um, virus, COVID virus. So the notion of we're all in the same boat, yes, but we're at very, very different points in the boat. And whether your frontline staff, depending what your health access is, and several other things very, very much determine how much you can protect yourself. And as I said, also asylum seekers per se are often in a danger due to the conditions they encounter. Part of all that, I think, is underpinned by a racialized system of who deserves what. To be very, very honest, and, and for me, that's the most striking thing, is always the death in the Mediterranean. We have thousands of people dying in the Mediterranean. If these people were white people, it wouldn't have gone on for so long. So, and that's just for me, many other things. Um, we have in the whole debate how COVID has been used to, to scapegoat people again, and Kirli has just been referring to it. Of course, people of Bame background have been particularly criticized there. This time it was first Asians who were attacked, but it's gone all throughout. So it's very interwoven. But to, to break it down into really all the little elements of it, we would indeed need a whole seminar. But it's just very, very connected. And the whole notion of inequality and some people be more deserving than others has, has unfortunately really, really come out throughout the whole crisis and is continuing. Okay. Thank you. Uh, there is another question, maybe, maybe Fiona, if you are aware of something, uh, the education provision for teenagers. No? The young people would love to actually learn about these things. Are there actually provisions for um, education of teenagers on, on, on these issues? So you're not talking about education for migrant children, but um, education about migration. Yeah. Into yeah. Um, I'm certainly not conscious that it's part of the standard Italian curriculum, but I'm certainly aware of um, projects such as our own, um, which do go into schools and have discussions with children. Um, and that's, that's been very powerful and also that includes primary school age children not not simply teenagers um, because whilst of course it's important to talk to teenagers there's a sense in which um, speaking to children who are much younger when they are very open uh, can also be important too. Okay thank you. So we are just coming up to eight o'clock. Um, you must have probably noticed the panelists could see the questions. Uh, there were a lot of comments about your presentation, appreciation for actually the way you engage with us. Uh, the last thing actually, uh, I would like to actually ask you from, from, from Steve Hemming, uh, if you had one prior request for us, okay, what might it be? Uh, one action we can take to ease suffering of refugees in Europe. Can I come in? Yeah. Well, I, th I think first of all, what for us has been very important in the last couple of months, but also throughout the whole work is 1 Corinthians 12, the body, 
body of Christ, the church and the faithful as the body of Christ, where if one member suffers, all others suffers, and if one is honored, all rejoice together. I think that's been very, very important. And in more secular language, I would break it down in, 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 into solidarity, solidarity with refugees and migrants, solidarity between countries, and for us, solidarity between churches. We can adopt papers, but the fact that the Church of England lords and the um, bishops in the House of Lords ask about Greek children on the Greek, uh, refugee children on the Greek islands, and that the Dutch churches are trying to get 500 of these children out of Greece. This is where the church lives. That's where we are in solidarity. And okay, thank you. Probably that's probably that is the best place to actually leave. No, uh, that that Christian solidarity, our solidarity in Christ. Uh, with one another, and, and particularly the most vulnerable among us. No? And, and we hold each other in our prayers no? for whatever work we are doing. And among the participants, I was going through the list of the participants, uh, and most of them are involved in refugee support, actually somewhere in this country uh, or, or in the countries uh, uh, around here. No? Um, so we all are united in our uh, uh, solidarity with the most vulnerable that we are trying to serve. No? And, and, and on behalf of all the participants, may I thank no, Torsten, Fiona, and Kirli uh, for being with us tonight, actually. It's great that we can meet like this from different parts of the Europe as such, no? and, and it is great. Uh, so now we finish here, but actually we have two more webinars on 1st of July and 15th of July, same time, seven o'clock until eight o'clock. Uh, in those sessions, we will be focusing on the situation and issues uh, very much common to the four nations of the United Kingdom. And we will have speakers from uh, all the four nations of the United Kingdom to highlight the issues and enter into a discussion about policies and changes and commitments that we need. Okay, with all that, um, let us actually retire and go in peace and serve the world. And God bless you all. Thank you. The Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a Creative Commons license. <laughs>